Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Hey friends, today I'm chatting with Ted Fisher, a professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University. I've mentioned Ted's work on the show before. He gave this talk at a coffee conference that left me questioning pretty much everything I thought I knew about coffee. And he's just released a book called Making Better Coffee, where he breaks down the history of coffee growing in Guatemala by looking at indigenous Mayan farmers who were displaced by German colonizers in the 1800s and forced into the country's mountainous highlands. The German colonizers dominated coffee production in coffee's first and second waves. But then the third wave brought attention and taste preferences to these high-altitude coffees grown in the areas that the Mayan communities had been displaced. As Ted recounts this history, he argues that great coffee isn't just about flavor and quality. We're constantly crafting and defining the parameters of quality, and our idea of what makes coffee good can be just as much a reflection of our social and political views as it is about what's in the cup itself. We talk about how neoliberalism has influenced how coffee is bought and sold, and how the most powerful actors in coffee now aren't the ones who own the means of production, but rather the people who can translate coffee's symbolic value to customers. This is a chewy episode with many big ideas, and you don't have to read Ted's book to follow along, but I can't recommend it enough. Here's Ted. Ted, let's have you start by introducing yourself. My name's Ted Fisher, and I'm a professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, where I also direct our Institute for Coffee Studies. I think we're all going to want to enroll there after this episode. I know that some people are familiar with the UC Davis program, but I didn't know that there was another Institute for Coffee Studies over at Vanderbilt, which is so exciting. Well, it's interesting. It started in 1989, really uh, funded by industry interest in our Department of Psychiatry. And a lot of the work that has bubbled up over the last, I guess now, 10, 20 years about the health impacts of coffee, a lot of that got its original start at the, at the Vanderbilt Institute. That's so cool. There's so much cool stuff that I think we're going to talk about in this episode. You wrote a book. It's called Making Better Coffee. And I have it open in front of me right now. And I even as I was thinking about this episode, I was like, man, people are going to hear me just like ripping through the book, looking for quotes, things that I want to ask you about. But we're also going to talk about some of the talks that you've given, because for me, I have this really seminal moment where I saw you give this talk at a coffee conference called Rico in 2019. 
and you put this one chart up that just completely blew my mind. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I want to start this episode kind of where I start a lot of my episodes with my guest. Did you grow up with coffee in your life? Well, it's interesting. I, I was a coffee drinker, I guess, probably in high school, a little bit in college. I first really started drinking coffee when I moved to New Orleans for graduate school. I did my PhD at Tulane, and there was a PJ's coffee shop, a specialty coffee shop on Magazine Street that had this little back patio, and I would sit out there all day and all night drinking different kinds of coffees. This was the early 90s. So maybe an Antigua or maybe a Blue Mountain, but first getting introduced to sort of the varieties of coffee. And I think you'll appreciate this coffee shop life, right? I could just watch the rhythm of the city go by sitting on that back patio of PJs. I think that's one of the greatest pleasures of visiting coffee shops is just being able to sit and watch people come in and out. I love that you identified that. But what made you want to study coffee further? I am an anthropologist, and my specialty has been uh, Maya communities in Guatemala. Guatemala, about half the population are, are indigenous or Maya peoples. And I had been interested in this since graduate school and looking at ways in which Mayan communities interacted with the global market. And I thought I had a really good handle on coffee. I had this image in my mind of awful exploitations on huge plantations that everybody saw as a, as a, as a real negative. And that was my image of, of coffee in Guatemala. And one time I met with a, a coffee guy and he was saying, no, the, this was around 2010. He said, the market has changed completely in recent years and all those old plantations are slowly going out of business and a lot of Mayan communities are, are growing coffee. And so I, I, I didn't quite believe it, but I was like, there's enough of a story there that I need to dive deeper. And that's when I really started researching this book. So to give people a little bit of context about how the book is framed, it does take a lot of your, your expertise in Maya communities and uses the framework of coffee to understand what's been happening in Guatemala for centuries, essentially. So I was wondering... Yeah, at least 150 years. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, maybe this is hard to do, but what would be your kind of elevator pitch about what this book is about? (laughs) Maybe maybe it's a a long elevator. Well, it's a hard one for the reason that you said coffee... It, 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 the threads of coffee extend to so many aspects of life, our individual health, our relationship with the environment, the political systems that create these, these, these contexts and these markets. And so that was a, a, an issue that I struggled in in writing this book. It's like, how do you follow enough of those strings that are all really, really significant and yet make it into a common story? And what I ended up sort of focusing on is is the relationship of value and values. When we say value in the singular, we usually mean economic value, price. And when we say values in the plural, we're talking about moral and cultural and social and political values. And what I saw with Mayan farmers and what I saw with specialty coffee professionals was trying to, to translate between values and value. Absolutely. And I think 
probably one of the mic drop moments for me, and you reiterate this throughout the book, is that really where Third Wave Coffee kind of garners its value is not necessarily in the coffee itself, not in the coffee just as a product, but the way that it's able to translate symbolic value, the way that it's able to tell a story, the way that it's able to say to people, this is better because of X, Y, and Z. And I think for me, that was such a mind-blowing moment because it wasn't necessarily about who's growing the coffee, who's making the coffee, or the coffee itself. It's who is able to translate that value and say to consumers, this is what this means. Exactly. So well said. I wish you had written the preface to my book, Ashley. I, I'm available uh, for next your next book, if that's... No, I'm kidding. That's exactly right. And I think it's no coincidence that specialty coffee and third wave coffee took off when it did in the 90s and really in the, in the 2000s. Because I think that was also a cultural moment where we're hungry to have products that aren't alienated, to use a term that the Marxists use a lot, that it, to have products that are we know the history of. It's it, it, the example of that that Portlandia episode where the, the couple are asking about the biography of the chicken they're about to eat is kind of the extreme example of that. But I think it comes from a good spot of us wanting to have some kind of connection with the people who are making the products that we that we can consume. It's interesting that you mentioned this kind of Marxist alienation language, because from what I remember from the idea of Marxism and how the means of labor and production are controlled, it's that having the means of production, controlling the means of production means that you control the value, that you control how things are marketed and you really have the power. And you see that through like Fordists models that like, you know, Henry Ford had the means of production. He had all of these factories and he was able to control what the value of cars were and labor was interchangeable. But when you look at coffee, farmers control the means of production, but we're in this late stage capitalism where that's been transformed, where the value is not necessarily about controlling the means of production, but controlling the way those means of production are translated to consumers. Exactly right. Once again, very well said. And think back, I mean, Marx was writing in the 19th century in the Industrial Revolution, and they were putting small household base weavers out of business with these big water-powered and steam-powered mills. And so they, they lost control over their means of production and had to sell their labor to a big factory. And so that's exactly right. That was the heart of power in that industrial system. And now we are in this new phase where it's not just about, it's about controlling the narrative and I would add the means of distribution. So, I mean, who has more power, some small factory in China making a trinket or Amazon, which has the power to reach into people's homes and laptops and market that? And so the we really are in a different economic phase. So I want to go back to that talk that you gave at RICO in 2019, because I think that what you just said ties in really strongly to this map that you put up. So you were talking about, I, I would argue, some of the foundational work that you were doing probably with this book that you were writing. You were talking about Maya farmers, and you were talking about how 
value is created. And you put up this map, and I'll never forget it. And you identified one farm. I believe uh, maybe this was in Huehuetenego. I'm not 100% sure. It is. Okay. It was. Yeah. So we're in Huehuetenego, which is a region of Guatemala known for producing really beautiful and excellent coffee. And on this farm, you marked a couple of different farms. You, you numbered them like maybe one through 10. And then you had a star on another farm. And you were like, this farm with the star is a cup of excellence winner. And you said that the average price that they get for their coffee is something like four something per pound. And you have all of these other farms surrounding that farm that are getting significantly less. Yeah, like a dollar fifteen. Yeah, like like four times as much, and that's exactly right. And the small holding farmers, mostly indigenous, and the Cup of Excellence farm was is a non-indigenous owned farm, and that means a lot in Guatemala. Ethnic tensions are are, are quite high, and so you had all these Mayan farmers, same elevation, same microclimate. We bought green beans from them and had them blind roasted at the National Coffee Association Ana Cafe. And they were scoring, I mean, some of them were, were, were not scoring high, but, you know, seven, over 70% of them were scoring 86 and above. And so they were producing coffee that on its face should be also worth $4 a pound, and yet they're getting $1.15. Can you explain why that is? And maybe that, as I said that question, that sounded like a ridiculous question for me to ask. But that opens up the question of what market access means. And like you were saying, the means of production and value is not so much about owning the actual means per se, but owning market access. Now, that's exactly right. And on its face, you would think that these small holding Mayan farmers would have all the 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 narrative and the symbolic and the cultural capital to really you know, take the, the the high value out of this. They have a millennia long tradition of farming. They're doing this using traditional cosmological practices in so many ways, and they're producing great coffee. In so many ways, that should be a story that consumers would want to buy. But how do you, and we talk about access and the cup of excellence, and it has lots of great things to be said about it. And I think it's a, a neat scheme, but it is an auction to identify the best producers in a country. And they make a big deal about saying anybody can enter. And that is true. Anybody can enter, but you have to know how to go to that website, right? Mm -hmm. And figure out what the rules for entering are and know where to send your coffee and all of these things that require a lot of, of what we in anthropology would call social capital, knowing how the system works. And rural, marginalized, Maya-speaking farmers largely don't know how the system works. Now that we've talked a little bit about Cup of Excellence, I think this is a good time to talk about a bigger theme in your book, which is about the third wave neoliberalist structure, which is a big, that's a big term. So maybe we need to break that down a little bit. But the idea that third wave coffee is about identifying these really excellent coffees, but at what cost do we do it and who do we harm in the process? So I was wondering, maybe we can take a step backwards and define what neoliberalism is, because it does show up a lot in your book and it is a framing technique you use to describe the third wave. So I was wondering if you could kind of define what that means and how it applies to coffee. 
Sure, and it is a term that gets used a lot in sociology and anthropology and in the social sciences. Usually, uh, you you would spit after you say it because it's generally a pejorative. Right, it's uh, not a nice it word. Not, it need not be that way, and it's it's an idea that really got hatched in in Vienna after World War II. And a lot of economists sitting around saying, boy, this this Soviet system is scary based around central planning. And we need to go back to our Enlightenment liberal roots that really focused on individuals and letting individuals be free to transact with who they want to transact with. So that's the philosophical view of neoliberalism, really based around individual freedom and liberty. But the way it gets worked out in policy is a reduction in the state, reducing state regulation, letting free, and I'm using air quotes there since we're on radio, (laughs) uh, free markets do their work. But of course, I mean, the reality is markets are never free. We need legal systems that back up markets. They're free. It's it's free within a certain context. Right. And it's free within your access to it, too. Like we were talking about earlier, markets not free if you don't have access to it. And there's a point, too, where you talk about the privilege that many Guatemalan farmers, many of these larger farm owners that kind of categorize first and early second wave almost feel like reluctant to talk about because there's so much faith in a free market regulating itself, but there's so much privilege that comes along with that. Exactly right. And we have to address that kind of structural exclusion or privilege that you speak of. The Mayan communities that I'm talking about Often people are first language is an indigenous Mayan language, and they speak um, uh, Spanish as a second language. Uh, Very few to almost nobody speaks English in those contexts. And so, yeah, you have these systems, the cup of excellence. It's open to anybody. And yet you've got to have a smartphone. These are super poor communities. You have to be able to to know how to, to fill out forms online. These seem like really basic things, but they're, they're huge barriers. And yet the line is, and it's, it's not a totally empty line, but the line is it's open to anybody. And if they decide not to enter, well, that's on them. Right. But then that fools us into this idea that we found the best, like we did it because we opened it to everybody. And I think that there's something interesting about exploring that fallacy of neoliberalism making it seem like we made it free for everybody. The market will regulate itself. Everything's available to everybody. And when individuals do succeed in a neoliberalist structure, that means that those are the best. But what I think neoliberalism does really well is disguise those limiting factors. Exactly. Exactly. And it it also, you asking that question, another thing that I would like to talk about, if not now, later, is this idea of discovering discovering the best. Yes, and yes. Let's do, do it now. We put so much emphasis on that discovering part, right? And we have you, coffee professionals and buyers, they're just like anthropologists when they talk about going to origin and, you know, the the out of the way places and how tough it was to get there and how awful the living conditions were. But we discovered this magical coffee in these remote exotic places. 
And yet what that's hiding is that we're we're kind of making up what the good tastes are as we go along. When I first started drinking coffee, I mean, what, what we're, what's hip right now, the, the, the taste of many anaerobics or even naturals, so an East African natural taste, that would have been considered weird if not defective. Mm-hmm. And now it's celebrated. Yeah. I think you say that pretty often in the book. You acknowledge that tastemakers, I think I wrote this down. This might actually been from a different interview you did. I was reading online, but I wrote down tastemakers talk about quality as an objective trait, which is absolutely false. That's that's right. We're, we're deciding what traits, what flavors, what taste gets celebrated. And that changes from year to year and season to season. And, you know, partly for good reasons. I think you and I would agree that kind of hunting out new flavors and wow, did you know that coffee could taste like that? That's that's cool. It's a it's a virtuous pursuit, but it can hide the fact that that's it's about us and not about like any innate qualities in the coffee bean. That's a good point. I think turning it around on us is a really salient point and something that we should consider when we're thinking about the idea of good meaning better or the idea of different meaning better when we're looking for something different and we're translating it into better, which I would argue happens on very elite levels. Like when you look at the United States barista competition, a lot of people use a lot of the same coffees. They evolve over time. They change over time and they're often new or different coffees, but they're often the same, which I think is really interesting, but it is about us. It is not about what's actually happening on farms. Exactly right. And that the way you phrase that to me, when I sort of realized that in doing this research was really powerful, that anything that we call better, we have converted that from different. So the, the different to better translation is is super important. And it does happen in an elite level. It's not it's not completely top down though, right? It's not a cobble of people at the specialty coffee association yeah. meetings or getting together in, in Portland and deciding it. It kind of, you know, people try something a little bit new and you're like, hey, try this. What do you think? And some of it pops and some of it doesn't. I want to come back to this idea of third wave and neoliberalism because I think for me that that made me question a lot of what I had been doing in coffee or the way that I had talked about coffee in the past. And when I, in 2015, I was a coffee trainer and I would do these public cuppings and I would talk about the coffees that we sold at the roastery. Like I worked for a roaster and we'd have all our coffees out on this table. And a really common question that I would get from people attending the the cupping, tasting all these coffees, is are any of these coffees organic? Are any of these coffees fair trade? And the way that I would circumvent that question, I genuinely believed that I was talking about a thing that was better. And in a way I was, is that I would say that, no, we circumvent the certification processes to work directly with farmers so that we can pay them more. And that is factually true. That is what we did. We directly worked with farmers and generally paid more than whatever the fair trade floor was. Because I think the fair trade floor, I think right now it's $1.40 per pound, but it fluctuates based on what the sea market is. It always guarantees a higher rate than the sea market. What we forget when we say something like that is that we're cherry picking who these farmers are. 
And going back to that chart that you made, it's like, you know, you have 11 farms on there. One is getting four something per pound. The rest are getting a dollar. And and generally, they're not the the smallest, most needy farms that that sort of saying we work with small farmers would imply. Right. Exactly. There's an and it it calls to question how. How do we make these choices? How did we get to work with these farmers? And a lot of it is. Dude, we have access to this farmer. Did we meet them at an event because they speak English? Like there's there's all these different ways that roasters can get connected with farmers that don't have anything to do with the coffee itself, but often have to do with like a privileged position. Like you were saying, these are often farmers who maybe aren't are are aren't as needing and and and, and I don't want to judge needing too too far or get too deep into that. The idea that like we're making these decisions about like one farm is gonna get this money and then the rest aren't but we do yep. have these collective organizations like fair trade, like 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 organic certification, maybe organic certification is not in that conversation, but like fair trade or maybe yeah. other certification programs that try to do more for a collective, perhaps. I'm not sure if I'm summarizing that correctly. No, I, I, I think that that is, that's right. So yeah, like, how do we talk about that? Like, how do we talk about what might be good for a group might not necessarily be the way that we're selling coffee, if that makes sense. Like this, as I was reading this book, it made me think like, were we better in the second wave? And I don't know what the answer is to that. Like, may, like I would, I would, I would say that people are going to listen to this and be like, absolutely not. There's no way, there's just no possible way we were better in the second wave. But as I think about systems that we put in place for larger groups of farmers versus the exceptionalism that has persisted in the third wave, I have to think, are did we take a step backwards in actually building equity? Brett, Ashley, once again, you're being provocative. Uh, I am. I, know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I, well, it's the right question. And I think you you set it up right and not, not over-determining what that answer would be. There is so much to be celebrated in the third wave turn. And we... Those of us who are into coffee, I mean, we've we've benefited from the this 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 surge of of different kinds of coffees and flavors and tastes and stuff. And even the intentions are really good. The direct relationship intentions, as you were saying, I mean, some roasters, specialty roasters, and coffee shop owners. I mean, so many of them are trying to do the right thing. But how do you do that? Okay, I need to talk to my importer and see if they can set me up with with, you know, so I can I can meet a farmer and I'm going to go to origin and they're going to set you up with somebody who kind of speaks your language, if not literally English, at least understands what the market that you're you're selling to is. And so, again, it's nobody's bad intentions, but it does orient this all toward more rather than less privileged farmers that way. It also, and I wanted to come back to your point about the collective versus the individual, and this is why it's neoliberal. So neoliberalism is very good at rewarding individual excellence Mm -hmm. and sort of winner take all markets, you know, like sports is probably the best example. You know, a little bit of difference makes a huge difference in pay. And it's become that way in the third wave market. Just a a little bit of an edge in terms of a of a of a quality standard makes a huge difference in what farmers are are getting are getting paid, and so highlighting the individual that's well and good. And most of the Mayan farmers I know 
would embrace a system like that. You know, they would say, we work really hard. We produce really good coffee. If we would be rewarded for our efforts, we're, we're all on board with that. But in fact, it's really hard. I mean, you've got a small holding farmer that's producing, you know, 15 bags or 22 bags of coffee a year. Just processing that on its own is really tough. And so they really prefer to work through cooperatives. But but buyers who are looking for you know, micro provenanced coffee, they don't want to buy from a cooperative that has 25 farms that are pouring cherries into the into the processing vats. They want to buy one farmer and tell that one farmer's story. I go back to that map that you put up and thinking about what you were saying that, of course, people want to be rewarded for their hard work. Looking at that map, all of those farmers are working hard. And I think that's what makes third wave exceptionalism kind of scary because I think it's easy to say that we reward quality. And quality is something that we haven't talked about too much in this, but quality is often codified into numbers, numbers, into how we pay for things. And it's easy for us to justify, oh, we paid $4 a pound for this because of the quality. But it's like, as you demonstrated in, in the work that you did by taking those those coffees and having them them cupped, everyone's working hard and the quality is often often there. That That's right. And so how do you do? Yeah, how do you make a choice? Is, like, how do you make a choice? And it, it, it can be kind of paralyzing or, or disconcerting or disheartening, as you were suggesting. I, I would also say there's another more optimistic narrative that, okay, let's let's say the neoliberalism system is in place and we're having to work within that. Now we 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 can identify a market failure. There is great coffee being produced that's sold for much less than its market value. So then how do we how do we make up for that? And there's not an easy answer because Right. I mean, somebody producing 20 bags of coffee, coffee is sold internationally in container loads of 40,000 pounds. There are a lot of logistics to be worked out, but there's also an, an opportunity there. Yeah. And I think it's okay to be clear about what you value too. Like you can't value everything, but I think the idea that value can be quantified and there is only one way to interpret value is what has really harmed us. And that's why... I would argue a lot of coffee roasteries look the same. A lot of the way that coffee roasteries purchase coffee look the same because we've placed so much value on these singular economic prices, scores. We've quantified quality in this way that I don't think quality can really be quantified, especially when we when we like actually look at our values. Like what do we value? And again, we don't have to value everything. It's okay to be a roaster who values working only with women producers. It's okay to be a roastery that only values working with partners who are maybe very close to where you live. That's all relevant and that's all important, but that's not how coffee works. No, and it kind of hides this translation of symbolic aspects and narratives. And this was grown in this, you know, remote farm where the rainfall is tremendous every year and all of these stories that do go into our value of it. But uh, the focus on, on, on numbers really hides the way in which all that happens. 
There's this chart on page 207. It's right towards the end of your book that I thought was really interesting. And I thought for me, it really solidified why why this conversation is really important. So you break down pretty much the value distribution of coffee into two market segments based on coffee's like quote unquote third waves. So you have how much coffee is sold US per pound in the first wave, how much in second wave, how much in third wave. And then you break down that number based on how much of that value is being is going back into consuming countries and how much of that value is going back to traditionally producing countries. And as the chart goes up, coffee is sold for way more in the third wave. Like that's un, that's you can't argue that. But the share of value going back to consuming or get, going back to producing countries, going back to traditionally produ- producing countries, is significantly smaller in the third wave than it is in the first or second. No, that's right. I'm so glad you pointed that out because I think that's a really feeling chart. And so it's important to say that absolutely the number, the amount in the third wave that producing countries receive is still higher than yeah. second wave and first wave. But as a percentage of the the, the total cost, price, it is much smaller. And so on the one hand, the narr- you, can, you can play this narrative two ways, right? Oh, look, producing countries are receiving a lot more than they were 20 years ago. Or you can say, boy, <laughs> producing countries are receiving a much smaller percentage of final price than they were 20 years ago. How do you put those two together then? Like, how do you try to parse those out? Because I think you're right. It's there are two ways to look at it. How how do you even start to understand it? Well, I think that it goes back to this the, the, a dearth of, of cultural capital on the part of the small holding producers. I think that they could capture more of that value and they don't even have to roast. But if they could own their story a little bit more and this is what those successful medium size, medium to large size farms have done. El Injerto in Guatemala, where I work, is a, is a great example. They produce great coffees. They're not a small farm, however. They're you know, we could argue if they're medium size or, or, or what they are, but they know how to tell the story that sells well in the United States. And they're able to to take a, a, a much greater percentage than than real smallholders. As roasters, how do we start to do some more of that work? I guess the royal we is applicable in this since neither you nor I are a roaster. But I would argue, and I have and I think I've said this a couple of times on this show, roasters could take more risk. There is more risk involved in coffee producing. And even in your book, you mentioned part of what happens in neoliberalist structures is that risk gets pushed further and further down down the chain to people that are that are most vulnerable. So how do we look at this problem and say, okay, how do we assume some of that risk and how do we bridge that gap? That's a great question and a, 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 a pressing dilemma. I think on the one hand, sort of easy, actionable kinds of things are when a roaster wants to establish a direct relationship, really push the importer exporter to 
to introduce them to a wider range of producers. And, and even just a little bit of, of push and, and nudging that way, I think could, could move the needle somewhat. But what you're getting at is this larger structural problem and where risk is distributed in the coffee market. And I like your idea of, of roasters or the consumption side at large taking on some more of that risk. I gave a talk to a, a non-in coffee crowd, and I used the example, Blue Bottle is selling a, a, an El Injerto Pacamara Natural right now for, I think, $55 for 100 grams. Uh, again, this is in Weiweitenango, Guatemala, where we did that study you referenced earlier. There are all kinds of small holders around there producing equally interesting coffees. And, and so capacitating producers some way, sort of having those kinds of relationships where roasters can talk to producers and share more of that knowledge and show producers what is even within their, their, their realm. That, I, I know I went a, a little off there. No, but. no, I totally see what you're saying, though, because so much of the disconnect between what 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 consumers are seeing and what producers are seeing that that's where it all lies, right? Like that's where that's where the disconnect lies, and being able to have access to like, oh, that's what the market looks like. I can do that, like no problem. Is, right. is 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 kind of part of the solution. And like you said, it involves all this cultural capital of being able to like go to an SCA event and see what people are consuming, talking to roasters in a language that both of you are comfortable with. Having having that cultural capital to kind of ascertain what's happening in the market is really, really key. And it's something that maybe I'm being a little pessimistic. You can be the optimist, I'll be the pessimist here. But I, I wish I saw more roasters attempting to bridge that gap. And maybe maybe hearing a conversation like this will alert them of that gap because maybe again, one thing I liked about your about your book is that you open up with this idea that like there are people are are truly trying their best. And there's a lot of that in the third wave, this idea that we are doing our best or we're trying and there's a lot of value in what we're trying to do. So like how do we reframe that? How do we take that to be like okay, how do we see outward more? And in all fairness, it is a heavy lift, mm -hmm. especially for smaller roasters, right? Struggling to get by, trying to create a market for yourself, trying to present these coffees that you're excited about in a way that you can get other people excited about. That's definitely a full-time job just focused on that to the consumer end. But I think you're also right. There is a the potential there to really not only present these coffees that one has found to a consumer, but to do that hard work of translating, of, of finding smaller producers and really translating that, that's the sweet spot. And we already have an example of that. That's how the third wave works. And you've rightly identified that in your book, that value is coming from being able to translate the symbolic value of coffee. So we have the tools. That's that's exactly right. And, you know, and that's the reason I'm an optimist about these things. There are so many good intentions. I, I was just struck doing this work on the coffee book and interviewing lots of, of specialty and third wave coffee professionals at just, you know, the, the virtue that was expressed, the dedication to craft, the wanting to make markets more just. These are all real, sincere sentiments. And I think what is needed is what you're suggesting is a pathway. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have the silver bullet solution. There, there isn't an easy pathway. 
but there's a lot of possibility right there right now in the market. I cannot recommend this book anymore. I learned so much reading this. I learned so much about big ideas, about small ideas, about the historical context of coffee. And I think what I'm finding especially valuable too, I finished reading this on Saturday. I still have like 100 pages of footnotes to go through, (laughs) which is really exciting because that means that there's more to read. It's so well researched. I saw so many articles that I was like, I need to read more on this. Like I said, the footnotes are incredibly rich as well. And I am so appreciative that there's such a exhaustive book that really, I don't know, like going back to this idea of optimism, it's like you can ask hard questions and still be an optimist. And I think that you really convey that in this book because you do ask a lot of hard questions and you give a lot of hard truths, but at the same time, it's not, you don't close the door on a better future. Ashley, that's the best endorsement that I could possibly have. And it is such a treat to be here. A longtime listener, first time caller here. (laughs) And so it's a it's a real treat to be here with you. I usually end these conversations by asking the guest, is there something that you want people to know about what you're doing or the work that you're involved in that maybe we didn't cover that you want people to know about? That's a hard question. I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I essentially tried to put everything in the book. What I will say as an educator, and we do have this, this Re- Coffee Research Institute, I'm teaching a class right now on coffee, and there is such interest on the part of my students in learning about coffee. And it is such a great way to explore environmental change and plant biology and the way in which colonialism the legacy of colonialism has really structured so many of these markets today. I, I guess I, I don't have a specific thing that I would like to, to share, but just the potential for further research in coffee is so enormous. Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This has been awesome. <laughs> My pleasure. That was Ted Fisher professor of anthropology at Vanderbilt University and director of the Institute for Coffee Studies. You can learn more by visiting Ted's website, including where to buy his book at Ted Fisher, T-E-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R.org. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez, you can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund. We pay for website hosting. And we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. 
Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.